Well, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. Rebecca and I just spent, I don't know what, a good 10 minutes it was talking about our trips to the liquor store. <laughs> um, Making a and, lot of those these days. And what they said about us, what they said about the world. Yep. Uh, I'm at a fatigued point. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. He's like, I'm just out of steam. And I think mm-hmm. that regards, it's not like the engine's different. You know, it hasn't been physically changed for good or for ill, but it, the, the coal is running low um, a little bit. Yeah, that feels true. Um, our coworker, Clint, sent me a text the other day about like the dog days, but they arrived in April. And I was like, you know, that mm-hmm. feels correct. Like, it feels like it's August in my soul. Yeah. Senioritis, but for existence um is what kind of we're getting in today Mm -hmm. we'll try to talk ourselves out of it a little bit thank you guys so much for listening hope you all out there are doing what you can i got follow-up to talk about sweaters a lot of lot of feedback on the world's most popular interesting influential recognizable sweaters general acclamation general acclamation that i was right which is first of all the most important thing to say that mr rogers probably has the most iconic Sweater wanted to remind me though that maybe the most influential sweater was Jimmy Cardig uh, Jimmy Cardigan's Jimmy Carter's cardigan <laughs> that he used when giving a fireside chat sort of a situation or a speech from the the White House I guess about the energy crisis and asking people to wear a sweater and turn down their thermometers mm. and Americans don't like to do that we don't like to be told to use less get by with less um, but the Carter sweater was on there. Um, a cable knit sweater apparently is the correct nomenclature for that Hemingway fisherman sweater mm-hmm. thing. And I guess it's not someone who's as extremely online as I once was. I think I missed the Chris Evans wearing that sweater from Knives Out kind of memeology that oh, went yes. on around that mm-hmm. moment. Um, and I'm a big Chris Evans fan. And one of the many things you can say about Chris Evans is the boy can wear a sweater. And that sweater was worn, I think, <laughs> is what the Internet was saying. Can we just do 45 minutes on Chris Evans and sweaters? Because my brain can do that today. If it was 2013, I think we would have just started a Tumblr about Chris Evans in, in sweaters. That's a thing that mm-hmm. that would have happened. Um, I think that's I think that's kind of the Ferris Bueller sweater, I guess, is another one that was mentioned that I that I really responded to mm-hmm. as well. But I think the Jimmy Carter and Chris Evans sweaters are climbing the charts there. So that was really... Uh, that was really fun to see people have fun with sweater. I wondered what sweater talk slash listener email was supposed to mean in our agenda, and now I'm delighted. There were screen caps. There may have even been a little bit of like Photoshop annotation on one of them. Shouts to all of you out there um, for uh, letting us know what's going on. The other listener feedback, a couple of little birdie kinds of people who work in publishing talking about layoffs, printer supply problem, one that works for an academic publisher having a really hard time. As you might imagine, I didn't really think about the academic publishers getting hit doubly hard Oh yeah, with the university closing down and you know demand drying up, basically, for universities since they're shutting down um, and layoffs are going to happen there. As you might expect, the smaller and more... I guess specialized the publisher is, the more variable it's going to be. Kids books, educational publishers, going through the roof. Um, I was on a bunch of sales calls this week for the company, which I shouldn't talk about in detail, but I I will say that on whole, the watchword of the day, and I'm knocking on you know whatever this is made out of, I think would, um, cautious optimism seems to be 
the phrase that best describes publishing writ large, I spoke mostly with Big Five, and then the next year after that, publishers this week. But sales, surprisingly strong, even for your mid-list fiction debuts in April, that we thought, if someone's going to get slaughtered, it's going to be that. Um, Hasn't seemed to be the case yet, as we've talked about here before. Nonfiction, puzzles, brain quest, like that, all that kind of stuff has just been gangbusters. Um, a lot of move, as you might expect, to ebooks and audiobooks. Um, even publishers that are sometimes reticent to give Amazon any credit whatsoever had a little bit of a thing there, but for the grace of uh, Bezos go we and being able to get things to people. Um, so I think that resonates largely with what we've seen and heard. Um, again, and this always can change, but the publication dates we've seen move to this point they're hoping represent the most of the evasive maneuvers they've undergone. They're really trying to hold July, August, and then into the fall, especially hold those publication dates firm. Now, if something, you know, really changes um, and people really start, you know, the stimulus checks runs out, unemployment um, runs out, will people tighten those belts? Um, How will they tighten them? Where will that money go? All big questions. But for now, cautious optimism. I think in talking, and I kind of broached this idea with several of them, and they agreed, like, even if it didn't make a huge difference to the bottom line that they're seeing, to have some bookstores reopen in June with people wearing masks and half capacity, I think would be a real psychological lift to the book mm-hmm. industry. Um, and that makes sense to me, right? That that's, that's, that's a sign we might be coming off the bottom rather than just living on the bottom as we <laughs> sort of seem to be doing now. Any, any, any thoughts about that? What, what I'm telling you, this is, I'm giving to you this fresh. We didn't talk about this at all. Yeah. I think that that would be like in any industry, you know, like we're hearing it in uh, about local restaurants here as well about we're supposed to come out currently in Richmond. We're under stay home orders until June 10th. And so the local restaurants that are doing takeout are starting to talk about, will they be able to reopen after June 10th and do, you know, like half capacity or Mm -hmm. make sure that all the tables are six feet apart? Um, Or would that not be enough people in the door to, you know, be able to pay for the staff that would come in? How's it going to work? I think it would be great to see some bookstores be able to reopen in that way or just open more than they are currently open, whatever that means, um, if they can do it in a way that's safe. I've heard some folks from indies that are doing, you know, like ship to home situations now saying that they could technically do curbside, but their experience was that like people were walking up too close to the door or not like keeping the social distance for um, mm-hmm. be- being able to do the curbside drop off and delivery. So they have stopped doing that. So I think, you know, getting the country in a place where the curve is going down and some bookstores can start to add services back and communities that have been worried that their store wasn't going to survive seeing their store come through it, I think would be, you know, a good morale boost um, for those communities and for publishing in general. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to get into news, um, but let's do a sponsor before diving in. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Horizon, publisher of Walk, Ride, Paddle. Walk, Ride, Paddle is a captivating memoir of Senator Tim Kaine's physical journey through the Virginia wilderness, but it is also a unique and ultimately optimistic perspective on these pivotal moments in history, offering inspiration, wisdom, and hope. With immediacy and honesty, Kaine pulls back the curtain to reveal his inner thoughts during such monumental times. 
And Kane's storytelling gift and wise observations offer a fascinating glimpse into the mind of a seasoned politician and outdoor enthusiast. Walk, Ride, Paddle is available everywhere audiobooks are sold on April 9th. It is narrated and written by Tim Kaine, Virginia senator and former Democratic vice presidential candidate. It's a compelling account of one man's journey across hundreds of miles of Virginia wilderness and a moving testament to the optimistic spirit of America. So make sure to check out Walk, Ride, Paddle by Tim Kaine. And thanks again to Harper Horizon, publisher of Walk, Ride, Paddle, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I guess related, we've talked about this in... um uh, 50 years ago, at the beginning of the COVID talk, I think we talked mm-hmm. about the books being essential business. I guess it was that PGW letter. That's what really we were sort of, uh, that was the grain of sand around which the Pearl of Rage uh, <laughs> formed. Um, Publishers Weekly is choosing actively to get behind a hashtag calling se- that books are essential, basically making a... A public health argument that bookstores should be labeled essential businesses so that they could be open um, in the face of, uh, you know, I guess depending on the local thing, right? If you have, if mm-hmm. non-essential businesses are closed and essential business remain open, that book should be categorized as an essential business. And the 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 mode of um, lobbying here is a bunch of pictures of people with books with books are essential. I've got to say. I think this is maybe dumb, bordering on reckless. Maybe I could be talked into dangerous here. Um, I don't want to get too nuts about it, but like <sighs> books aren't essential. I guess that's what, uh, what do we mean by essential? Like if a liquor store is essential, is a bookstore essential? I guess I could get behind that logic. I'd be all right if my liquor store would be closed. But like, I just don't, I, they're not a grocery store. They're not a pharmacy. They they just they just aren't Rebecca, right? Am I crazy? I no, I think there's a couple things going on and one of yeah. them is that like state to state which businesses get classified or even city yeah. to city which businesses get classified as essential is inconsistent and apparently sure. idiosyncratic. You know like my yes. dry cleaner is open even though no one is wearing business clothes that require mm. dry cleaning right now. Like why is the dry cleaner an essential business? I have no idea. Um, but there are, you know, there are cities in which like hair salons are still open mm-hmm. because they're considered essential. And I I think that in some of those places, it's like how effective has have these different industries been in lobbying their state governments to be considered essential. So if what we're talking about is the like, absolute quality of our books, essential, should they be considered essential for public health? I have to agree with you and say like, Mm -hmm. no. If what we're talking about is the technicality of, well, if these bookstores could get labeled as essential, they they can continue to do some kind of business. And now we're just talking about gaming the system. Right. Yeah. I, I can understand that, except like... You know, I'm in a state where bookstores are not considered essential. So the doors have been closed. You can't browse a bookstore. I think that's in everyone's interest, including the people who own and work in those bookstores, especially. Mm. You're not being exposed to a bunch of germs, but they can still conduct business. They're doing online sales. You can call the bookstore and order things and have them shipped to your home. Some places are still doing local deliveries. Like they are still able to do business. And I think that's important. Um, I have heard about a couple of places where it was 
either temporarily limited or um, the city was discussing, like limiting the number of people who could be in a business or saying, actually, you can't do shipping out of your business because we are concerned that means too many people will be in the building. And if that were going on, I think we'd hear like a real outcry from bookstores and from other businesses. But like, if you've got books and you can sell them, and like Ingram has a direct ship to home option where even if the bookstore itself isn't open, like I could call yes. the bookstore and say, I need a new copy of whatever. They could place the order for me. Ingram would ship it directly to my house from their warehouse and that bookstore would still mm. get their cut of the sale. Um, so I, I just think this is in bad taste. Um, yeah. It's just in bad taste, like, it, and it seems unnecessary, and it puts people at risk, including, or maybe especially the folks that work in the bookstores. And I don't even want to call out the store by name because I don't want to give them any attention. Mm-hmm. But there was a piece in PW I think yesterday about a store in a state that's moving to reopen things, and they were you know, very kind of like proudly and defiantly saying like, yep, we're open. We're not wearing masks. We're not worried about any of it. We figure everybody's going to get coronavirus at some point anyway. So like shruggy man. And that's maybe maybe they should read one of their books about epidemiology. (laughs) Like that I felt grateful for like, well, thank you for telling me who's running their business in this Mm -hmm. way, because it's a complete disregard for public health and a complete disregard for your employees to be like, we need, well, we, we have to be open and we're not taking any measures Mm -hmm. to be safe. Um, That I don't want to see. I, I just, I, you know, we, I love books. I hate that we're in this position of having to like have a discussion about our books essential or, or not, but we are in a global pandemic and if it yes. comes down to it, <laughs> you, we got to hold don't. the. I mean, part of it is holding the line, right? Like, mm-hmm. I can understand why for some of these people, it is in their financial and career best interest to make a case to try to game or move the line of essentiality, right, towards mm-hmm. where they want it to be, so that they can open. I understand that. On the other hand, I don't care. I, I mean, in, in a very real way, it's like there's so many other people who also have businesses affected by this. And because we think books are magic, and some bookstores are even called that, that they're somehow not subject to the other things the rest of the world is doing seems unfair in a very basic way. And like, if libraries aren't open, bookstores shouldn't be open, because newsflash, libraries are more essential than indie bookstores, and in in bookstores at all, in my opinion, at least, because Mm -hmm. you don't have to pay for it, it serves different communities, blah, blah, blah. If your library isn't open, your bookstore shouldn't be open. It's pretty simple to me in that regard. Um, so there, that's where I am today. I, very, yeah, maybe I'm tired and I'm like, we just got a whole, <laughs> I understand you're anxious and you haven't gotten sick and you're, you think you could have your people in there to buy their mid-list novels and everything would be fine. But it's not about any individual action. It's all of us doing the thing together and this is part of the thing. This is part of it. I just think the math implicit in this, whether it's a bookstore or a restaurant or whatever, a tattoo parlor, a hair salon is if you insist on being open and you are having your staff in the space, and especially if you're like just defiantly not taking any measures of precaution, you're, you're stating whether you believe you're stating it or not, that the running of your business is more important to you than the health of the people who work for you and the health of the people in your community. Like Mm -hmm. that's the choice. It's somewhere on the spectrum from morally questionable to downright unethical (laughs) 
<laughs> and mm-hmm. like earlier today, we were talking um, on our company Slack about hearing that some publishers have been like hustling to be able to ship galleys out of their warehouses again, because there are reviewers from major publications who won't read digital review copies of books. Mm. And the publishers are concerned that if those reviewers and these big publications don't get their print review copies, then the publisher won't get their release day coverage of these books that they need or that they believe they need this coverage to have sales and, you know, continue hustling. Like, I'm sorry, if you're sitting at home and you're a book reviewer and you are refusing to read a digital copy of a book to the point that someone now has to go into work at a publisher's warehouse and be near other people who may be infected. And most of these publishers are based in New York, which let's not forget has a huge infection. Everything's fine in New York, right? That's what I heard. Everything's fine there. These are just the most messed up priorities. Like I was saying privately and I'll I'm happy to say it here like I think that what should happen in this moment is all the publishers should just agree that they're not shipping out print galleys right now mm-hmm. and if you want to be reading review copies you can be reading them digitally we have tons of ways to provide access to that and if your job is as a reviewer you probably have a way to read those digital review mm-hmm. copies like it's print just, out your pdf print it out baby right you can print that pdf <laughs> just, that is yeah. not essential and i'm really angry that people are being put at risk and we heard about folks having to make like multiple trips to the post office every week so that they can mm-hmm. ship out galleys because their boss is worried about getting reviews like this is just not math that we should be having to do right now and there are people who could be making different decisions about their priorities that would include you know, at least engaging their critical thinking. I don't think that anyone is trying to be intentionally malicious and everyone is anxious and scared. But if it, if your anxiety comes out in a way that's like, I'm scared for me and therefore you need to do a thing that puts you at risk, that's not mm-hmm. great. <laughs> I guess while we're on the subject of independent bookstores and, you know, the, the havoc being wrecked here, I was I didn't put this in the, the agenda, so I'm sorry to spring on you mm. um, all of a sudden. I think you saw it in one of the slacks, too. There's an article in The Guardian about there was a mystery 250,000-pound yes. donation to, to UK bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out uh, there was a fundraiser, and they're one of the donations out. They, they initially set out to raise 10,000 pounds, quickly raised 100,000 pounds, the, it got to 380,000 pounds, and 250,000 pounds of that came from an unnamed donor, which now has turned out to be uh, Amazon, which is awkward. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say. Uh, I, I, I'm frankly shocked. This is not the kind of, we, we even said, I guess in the same episode about PGW, that we've really not seen any indication that Amazon is interested in bailing out publishers, other bookstores, you know, being buttressing other parts of the ecosystems that frankly either they do or do not directly compete with i was really surprised to see this is amazon uk run differently is it reasonable to think that this means there could be a u.s version of this i i thought this could have been an april fool's joke kind of a headline that i would have that i would have spat out that's a hook line and sinker i'm like i'm not falling for that but lo and behold it's thursday april 23rd and it looks legit those were the same questions i had like is amazon uk run differently and do mm-hmm. am do uk independent bookstores have some sort of different relationship with amazon 
where this is a thing. Like, I still don't expect to see this happen in the U.S., even though we saw James Patterson imploring Mackenzie mm. Bezos, at least, to participate yeah. in his fundraiser to support independent bookstores. And what was it? Pub West wrote that mm-hmm. open letter to Amazon about supporting publishers. I think if we were going to see Amazon support either the publishing industry writ large or indie books, bookstores in particular, we would have seen it already. I don't think we're going to see it. And it's so it's like it's both awkward and just strange. Yeah, <laughs> it's just quite strange. a flex. From and Amazon. the discourse quite around a flex. it, like, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just wonder about that. Like, it seems like it can't be anything but a flex of like. It's hard to read this in any way other than like we're giving you this two hundred and fifty thousand dollars because we have it, and also we know you can't turn it down, even though you probably mm-hmm. want to. Like. You know, there's there's a quote in this piece in The Guardian uh, from someone who works with uh, the UK independent bookstores and says, I know that there's a huge strength of feeling against Amazon among booksellers and that the horrible (laughs) irony of this donation will be lost on none of us. But I hope it won't stop any of us supporting the work of the book trade charity. It's just, you know, a rock and a hard place, I think, where if Amazon did give $250,000 or a million dollars, or what was it like the $10 million grant that we were imagining a couple of weeks ago? Like, you know, it would be really tough for bookstores to not take it and Mm -hmm. then choose to go out of business or to choose to have to continue laying people off when that money had been available. But they do spend a lot of time railing against anyone who works with Amazon or takes Amazon money. And I I think quickly the discourse might pivot to being about it's Amazon is 250,000 all they could give. Uh, and I just, yeah, right, it's sure. a weird look. It's mm-hmm. confusing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't it understand what happened. Kind of reminds me. I mean, there's various ways of coming out. <laughs> Even the TikTok of this is a little interesting because initially it was an anonymous donation which is interesting in itself. But then there was an, it was such a high percentage of the total funds raised that there was pressure to say who it was, right? And Amazon, mm-hmm. and um, the, the, the woman running the trust said that she got Amazon's blessing to reveal who it was. So it was a bit of a, if you just shut up about wondering who gave it, then we wouldn't have to be in the situation right. of, <laughs> of, of questioning it. But it reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid and I'd play my brother in basketball and I'd spot him a few points. You know, just to make it interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. that That's very ungenerous. And that Amazon initially wanted to be an am, uh, anonymous. And frankly, it seemed like they would be happy to be. But then they also said it was okay to say, I don't know, kind of a weird little eddy. It is in weird. the um, psychological politics of how this is all uh, going to play out. So again, and the grand scheme of things doesn't add up to much, but enough of us uh, raised eyebrow that we thought we'd... Uh, Yeah, and I'm I'm curious, like from our birdies and even our listeners in general, like if your beloved independent bookstore had to take Amazon money to stay open, Mm. do you want them to take it or do you want them to die on their principle? Well, yeah, everyone has a price. It's just how high, you know. You know, that's Mm -hmm. that's not. I'm not unfamiliar with that particular um, situation. I guess in terms of how money is being spent. I thought this was really interesting. This was in my local paper, uh, the Oregonian, about Multnomah County Libraries, which is the the library system under which Portland um, functions, talking about how they're operating, like what's going on with libraries now that the, the buildings are closed. A couple of interesting things here. As you might expect, digital usage is way up, um, 43% year over year in March. And remember, March had a couple of weeks that was 
you know, pre the fall. So uh, I guess our April numbers will be even more interesting. <laughs> the suspended purchase of new physical materials, the Multnomah County Library did not a surprise, and instead dedicating $460,000 per month to ebooks and downloadable audiobooks eight, from 850, or excuse me, $180,000 per month that had already budgeted. Um, has added two, 25,000 items already to the digital catalog, ebooks, wow. audiobooks, also music, movies through Canopy and Hoopla and others. Um, content towards children is way up, as you might expect. Um, yeah, the streaming video plays have increased by 210%. Uh, also, was it this article? Maybe it was a different one um, about library workers who normally would be you know, staffing the libraries are out there Many of them, and I'm, I think it's voluntary, um, helping, oh, it's in this, yeah, helping mm-hmm. to staff emergency shelters and countywide donation centers, using library delivery trucks for emergency operations, creating and translating content for countywide communications, creating face shields, respirator components and face coverings, using 3D printers, laser cutters, and sewing machines, and reaching out to isolated seniors. To ch- I'm going to get choked up if I read too much of mm-hmm. that. Um, but as librarians repurpose their um, goodwill and public service, um, to frontline matters. Uh, well done. May your efforts succeed. Good job, librarians. I hope you're staying Good safe. Good job, librarians. Out there. Not sure there's anything else to say about that. I mean, I guess it would be, I think maybe you and I talked about, or me and Jan, I'm not sure, about how are some of the trends we've been seeing slowly happening over the last few years in books and reading going to be altered by this? You know, I think we all have a sense mm. that life will be altered not just about the virus itself and what else, but habits of mind and behavior that could have long-lasting impacts. And, you know, you and I have talked about audiobooks, the rise of audiobooks, ebook lending through libraries as being something mm-hmm. there's been, you know, a, a relatively uh, vociferous <laughs> discussion about. Yeah. Um, it, but, like, will these, is this a catalyst, will this speed along trends we're already seeing, or will it, or, or is it altering trends that would have happened in some other way? I'm just not sure how how to make of it, but I know talking to my dad and some other people in my life, um, because they're complaining, or not complaining really, because everyone understands, but noting the length of the holds list on uh, digital mm-hmm. uh, content and through Libby. So, you know, but I'm hearing it that way, but hearing from a lot of people in my life that I didn't know were using online lending platforms quite the way they were. I could see how this might move us ahead a few years in some of those patterns, or maybe it even puts on a completely different trajectory. I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I think that we're I think we will see a little bit of both where Mm. things that were already happening, like ebook lending was already kind of at an inflection point or had, there had been a lot of discussion around how it should work. Like we're all on the stay home orders now. If the, like, a lot of the reports that I've been reading, if a lot of the public stuff is correct, like this will not be the only time that we yeah. do a quarantine yeah, that's true. situation. Like if it takes a while to get a vaccine, we're likely to, you know, go out in the world and then come back inside for a while and go out and come back inside for a while. And I would think that publishers and libraries would be very motivated to be improving the way that they offer digital access to folks mm. over the course of this experience. And I've been hearing those same things as well. My dad is an avid library user and was getting super frustrated with the holds list in general. But then when they um, closed down the libraries for lending of physical books, he got his first e-reader and he's been like, he figured Mm. out the Libby situation and has been buying, you know, cheap e-books so he can stay interested and plugged in. And we've been having those discussions. So I, I hope we'll see 
ebook lending get figured out and made much more workable for libraries? Because this is going to be, I think, a real opportunity for libraries to demonstrate like actually what the demand is on them mm-hmm. um, and to talk about the essentialness of that service of providing free access to material when people yeah. can't get access any other way. Um, I'd love to see that happen. I don't know about, you know, audiobook stuff. It feels to me like the audio listening. I don't know that we've seen any audiobook reports, but we have been seeing that like podcast listening is down mm-hmm. right now. And that's attributed generally to the assumption of like, well, people aren't commuting right now. So yeah. when are they going to be listening to podcasts? I would guess that audiobooks might be in the same camp, but that when people do, you know, mm-hmm. be able to, when people are starting to be able to go back to work uh, and have their commutes again, we may see that go back up. But there's the question of like, how many companies realize that they actually can work remotely when they didn't think they could before, or that it's easier than they thought it would be, and they can save the overhead of an office. So those commutes just go away permanently. Like, who knows? I think there are so many, going to be so many long-term repercussions of this and um, outcomes that we Mm. just don't have any way to guess yet. But whichever direction those go will have an impact on how folks are consuming books and reading and all that business. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but... Like a lot of things, everything's in flux, including the flux. The flux itself is in flux. So let's do a sponsor and come back with a couple more stories. Um, hmm, Boy, I super want to talk about most challenged books. That will calm me down. That will make me feel better. But let's let's do it. We should do it. Yeah, let's we get it get out, out of the way, way and, and then we can first. do something you know nice and actionable for folks to wrap up. Yeah. Top 10 most challenged books of 2019. Uh, the ALA Office for Intellectual Freedom tracked 377 challenged to school, library, and university materials and service in 2019. Of the 566 books that were targeted, here are the most challenged. You know, we've heard mm-hmm. these names are familiar to us. I think last year, um, if it wasn't number one, it was in the top 10 again. It was George by Alex Gino, um, which is LBGTQ plus and transgender and... You know, I get, is it sad? It's sad that I'm not surprised. Um, I wish it weren't the case, but if you had to give me a bet, I would put this, I would say this is, and if I'm playing Family Mm. Feud style, the saddest game of Family Feud ever, I definitely would have guessed George by Alex Gino here. Um, Also, we've seen on this list before, Entango Makes Three, um, which is a book about, I think... Same-sex penguin couples adopting a penguin because that's terrible and everyone should stop reading that. Uh, Harry Potter's on here. Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. Oh, I Am Jazz was on last year, and that's again on here featuring a transgender... It's not a character, right? Because it's a memoir, so okay, whatever. Um, I guess if there is a through line... There is a through line. Yeah, it is the... There's a there's been like a transition and we've talked about this over the last, I guess, like a decade or so where previously, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the challenges were primarily around books that acknowledged gay identities and Tango Makes Three is one of those. And now it's, mm-hmm. I think, like the new battleground for challenged books is really around gender and the like gender spectrum and affirming non-binary identities and that 
is the new thing that people who challenge books are feeling threatened and upset about. Uh, like, no, I think you're right. This list is predictable and disappointing and how predictable it is, except for The Handmaid's Tale. I'm kind of surprised that it is still fr- that, mm. fr- that, ugh, that frequently challenged. Like, the book is not that new. It's also not that incendiary anymore, I don't think. Um, maybe just increased mm-hmm. attention on it because of the show. And I the, like that it has sexual overtones. <laughs> Banned and challenged yeah. for profanity. I mean, they're not overtones. They're just tones. They're just there. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagine a version of that book that had yeah. nothing to do with sex. Like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't exist. Um, yeah. And related. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's statutory rape or not actual regular rape happening there. Let's just call it what it is. I don't remember the profanity, weirdly. That's the one that I got. I bumped on. I was like, was there profanity in the Handmaid's Tale? It's so strange. Yeah. Um, I don't remember. Anyway. I don't remember. I don't know. Uh, Harry Potter makes a return well, to the list. witchcraft, you know. And, yeah. and notably, uh, there's a related piece. Sure. sure <laughs> yeah, there's a related piece from The Guardian that notes that attempts to remove books from libraries across the U.S. rose a fifth last year, 20%. Um, and it did feel like we were getting a lot of stories about sort of like the stealthy ways that people were going about trying to get books taken off of lists or out of libraries. And that feeling that there were more of them than usual was also a fact. It was up by 20%. And 80% of the challenges have to do with children's books featuring LGBTQ characters. Um, so come on, people do better. There's a little, there's, they gave it a list. I didn't scroll down because if I had, I would have said, yes, indeed, we have Mm -hmm. seen some of these before rather than just trying to use my faulty recollection. But if you look, it also gives the aggregate number of challenges each year. And the number of challenges has doubled Mm -hmm. since 2015, up from 275 in 2015 to 566 last year. (sighs) There's a way, if I'm trying to be positive, I think that there's a way of reading that as a good sign because the books that are available mm-hmm. to be challenged are, you know, they're in the arena, right? Mm-hmm. Like, come challenge, come at me, bro, right. the librarians and teachers seem to be saying. Um, I guess I would prefer, I, I know I would prefer for the same number of books and the same kinds of uh, experience identities being affirmed and represented would not be challenged at all, but that they're there to be challenged is a sign of something, and I think ultimately yeah. bends towards the way we, I would like it to go personally but it's still disheartening to see that as the representation has risen Mm -hmm. so has the challenge so have the challenges um to them i'd like i'd be curious to see if this is a trend where we're going to get more inclusionary books on lists on shelves on curricula and that this kind of effort to challenge remove silence (laughs) muzzle now i'm just giving synonyms for the same thing them continues or will it wane like will people get tired of challenging it because i don't think the librarians are getting challenged or are tired of putting this stuff up are you that's my sense is like i don't think this is going to work to fatigue the librarians and teachers that are committed to this but i i, I guess yeah i think maybe it's that's more of too. like w- my question more is like what will be the theme of the most challenged books in another 10 years 
Because it, it does seem to me that, you know, progress oh, yeah, moves in the great. way that progress does. And the arc, as you were saying, is that in is going in the direction that we would like to see it go, where mm. publishing is doing gradually a better job of representing people from all different backgrounds and experiences and identities. And the flashpoint for books being challenged right now is around gender and LGBTQ identities assuming that these folks spend like 10 years unsuccessfully challenging this and that culture continues to become more accustomed to it and people start to understand more broadly what you know the gender spectrum is or what it is to talk about non-binary and trans folks as that Mm. becomes more like normal and accepted in culture what's the next thing like what will be the next front that will move in culture for progress and representation and then that will come out in publishing and people who oppose things will oppose that instead the right wing headbangers will (laughs) right like i think they're still kind of silently banging their heads on all the other doors that they've tried to bang them on like it's not like it's not like they magically became cool with the existence of gay people but challenging the books about gay people didn't work and so now they've moved on to the next thing Mm mm-hmm um yeah, well, right. here's to your continued headaches, nut jobs. Um, uh, okay, get well, me out of here I got with a, something. A good. nice, good thing. Penguin Random House donated seven hundred and fifty thousand books to First Book, um, fueling an effort to support kids in need who have been affected by coronavirus. You can read more about that in a link on the show notes, but the donation comes um, through more than 600, sorry, 6,000 educators in the first book network who are still working to serve kids in need. And they have made urgent requests for books, both to help the students continue learning and also to provide a needed sense of normalcy. First book does just really incredible work and PRH donated again, 750,000 copies of children's books, more than 300 different titles. Um, So wonderful to see them do that. And I'm so happy to see PRH do a donation that is like a straight up donation. Um, At the holidays, we often see them do like, we'll donate one book for every use of this hashtag. Uh, And this is not the time to be requiring that. So I'm really glad to see it was just a straight up like, we're going to give you these books. Um, Clearly, there's a need for it. Good job, PRH and first book. May your efforts succeed. And you as readers and listeners, um, if you are wondering about supporting your own indie bookstore, we'll have a link in the show notes to a piece on Book Riot this week from Allie Kirkpatrick, who's the owner of Old Town Books, which is in Alexandria, Virginia. It's a D.C. suburb, wonderful bookstore. And we went to her and asked her to tell us what can people do and in what order? Like you've got 20 bucks, you want to support your independent bookstore, what can you do? And so she wrote a flow chart for us of... Um, how to spend those dollars to best support the bookstore. So you can find that at Book Riot as well. Yeah, we don't we don't recommend you go read stuff on the site too often, but that's one you, you really should. Um, stuff we talked about before, as Rebecca said, um, it's good to really see the numbers laid out that way. We've been having tech difficulties on and off, so we're going to get out while the going is just real bad, not just extremely bad. Rebecca, thank you so much. <laughs> we'll talk to you in fits and starts next week. Hang tough. <laughs>